0: things that I'm sharing with you, probably, I meditated on Scripture. I could give you a long explanation, but I had a miraculous encounter with the Lord. The Word started coming alive. I spent 15 hours a day studying the Word for years, and I still study the Word a lot, but I mean, it was intense, and I just had an explosion on the inside of me. I saw these things basically about 1973 And I saw it, but man, I couldn't verbalize it. I couldn't explain it. And I couldn't combine it with other scriptures. And I didn't know how to explain it. And it took me 20 years after I basically got a revelation of this, meditating on it to where I could connect the dots and explain this to other people. And so my purpose in saying that is that, you know, you may have heard some things and you may have got some revelation from the Lord, But I can guarantee you there is more to it than what you've gotten in just a couple of times listening. This is the kind of thing you have to go over and over. I have spent thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of hours meditating on this and praying and asking God for instructions. And so this is just so counter-religious culture. It's so counter what all of us have been taught that it takes a while for this to soak on the inside. And so even if you've been here, you need to get those materials, and especially if you were not here Last night I started talking from Romans 5:13 that until the law sin was in the world but sin isn't imputed where there is no law. God didn't hold sin against man until the time that the law came. That's a huge statement and that totally changes most people's impression of how God dealt with man after sin entered the earth. For nearly 2000 years he was merciful as a whole unto man. And when he did bring judgment, it was actually an act of mercy on the human race as a whole. It may have been terrible judgment on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it was like purging a cancer and getting it out so that there could be a seed left for his son to come through. He operated in mercies, what it says in Romans 5, 23, uh, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin isn't imputed or held against you until the law came. This morning I went back to Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 4 and I showed you that the Lord drove Adam and Eve out of the garden not as punishment and rejection. He did it out of love to keep them away of the tree of life. He didn't want mankind living forever in a sinful body racked with the hatred, the strife, the hurt, the pain, the sickness, the disease, the poverty, uh, the killing and all of the things that could go on. He didn't want that to go on forever. He had a better plan than the human race continuing in a sinful body. He had a plan of a new creation and someday we'd receive a glorified body and so he had a better plan. It wasn't rejection and punishment when he drove man out of the garden and we prove that by going to the fourth chapter and he was still walking and talking with man in an audible voice and the very first murderer on the face of the earth, Cain he actually gave him mercy and put a mark in him and said if anybody kills Cain, I'll avenge his death sevenfold. And he protected the first murderer. In contrast when the law came, the very first person that broke that was Numbers chapter 15 verse 23 and he is a man that went out and picked up sticks and because he broke the law, God said, put him to death. Under the law, a person who broke the Sabbath and picked up sticks so that he could make a fire was put to death. Before the law, a murderer was given mercy. Can you tell that the law changed things? And the law was only temporary. Galatians chapter three. If I can talk fast enough tonight, tomorrow morning, we're gonna get into that and talk about that. And it was only temporary and it wasn't intended to be the number one way. There's been approximately 6,000 years since the fall of Adam and Eve, 2,000 years he was not imputing man's sins unto them. Then he did impute their sins through the law. And then since the time of Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing man's trespasses unto them. And that was not only the ministry of Jesus. The next verse says, and he has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Or maybe that's the same verse. and he, Is it the same verse? And he hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And then the next verse says, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did you, beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled unto God. How do you get reconciled? By not having your sins imputed unto you, held against you. This is supposed to be the way it's been through the church age. For 2,000 years, we were supposed to be telling people, we are his ambassadors. An ambassador means that you don't preach your own message. If they made me an ambassador to Canada, did you know what? I don't go up there and tell them what I want to do. I'm representing the United States government and I'd have to find out what my... Uh, sovereign, what the person who sent me wanted to do and I represent them and I preach his message, not mine. We have been leaning unto our own understanding and the church has been telling people, yeah, God's mad at you. God won't bless you. The reason you aren't prospering is because God is judging you. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. Some of you are looking at me like, who would ever say that? Have you heard people say that the terrorist attacks were God's judgment on America because we haven't been seeking the Lord because we took prayer out of school. I heard people say that this oil spill in the Gulf was the judgment of God because Obama snubbed uh, the Israeli leaders. You hear hear the same thing all of the time, that if you do this, God's going to judge you. There's punishment. This is the reason the hurricane happened. This is the reason you had bad weather. This is the reason that they had a snowstorm that killed people. It's the judgment of God. I used to say, before I got this revelation, I used to tell people that if God doesn't judge America for our sins, He's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because we are just as ungodly as Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what? My opinion of whether we're godly or ungodly hasn't changed. But now I understand that God placed our judgment upon Jesus. And now I say that if God does judge America, He's going to have to apologize to Jesus. Because Jesus paid for the sins of this nation and of us. Somebody said, so you think that everything's just fine the way it's going? No, we're in, this, we're in the process of destroying ourselves. Some of the things, we've done more in the last year or two to hasten the destruction and the demise of this nation than it has been done in 200 years. I believe there are a lot of bad things happening. Or am I saying that there's no consequence? No, we are in the process of destroying ourselves, and there are consequences, but God's not the one that's destroying us. God's not the one sending the hurricanes and the terrorist attacks. But when we say, God, get out of our public schools, God, get out of our life, we don't want any prayer. We're trying to be secular. And there's people referring to nations like France that are openly saying that they are a secular nation and wanting to emulate them. When you do that, you just kick God out. And then in the absence of God and his blessing and protection comes problems And failure, and yes, there's going to be problems. And yes, this nation is in trouble. And yes, we need a revival. But why? To turn God from his wrath? No, Jesus turned him from his wrath. And if Jesus didn't do it, you aren't going to do it. There's nothing you can do to add to what Jesus did. And if you're praying all night long to, oh God, turn from your fierce wrath. Oh God, repent of what you're going to do to America. Then you ought to find out about the gospel. You ought to find out that Jesus has already been an intercessor to end all intercession like that. There still is a godly intercession, but it's not begging God to turn from His wrath. I nearly preached on something different, but I'm going to stop. What I want to do tonight is to just share some scriptures with you. For those of you whose scripture mean anything, I'm going to give you so many scriptures tonight that you're going to, you may not understand it, but you're going to have to at least say, you know what? We must be out from under the law because there are so many scriptures that say it. The scripture says in Mark chapter seven, verse 13, Jesus was speaking and he says, you make the word of God of none effect through your tradition and doctrines of man that you've received and many such like things do ye. Traditions and doctrines of man void the word of God and Again, I know that those of you that are here on a Friday night to listen to me at a hotel are not your nod to God crowd. You're the fanatics. You're either a fanatic or you were drug here by a fanatic. You're the cream of the crop. But you know what? There are still people in here that religious tradition is so strong in you that even though I'm going to show you dozens of scriptures... There's some of you that are going to go out here and say, I can't be true. Why? Because that's not what you were taught. I'm encouraging you to let the Word of God get in the way of what you believe. Let the Word of God be the foundation. And if you'll do that, I guarantee you, it'll change your life. Let's turn over here to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I was sharing this morning how that the law wasn't given so that you could keep it. And by keeping it, you could earn relationship with God. The law was given to show you what right and wrong was, to make sin come alive so that you would recognize, whoops, I thought I'd overcome sin I hadn't. You started lusting for the very thing that God told you not to do. And then the third purpose of it was to show you that if this is what God demands, I'll never make it. I can't save myself. I need a Savior. The law was given for these... They are necessary things, but they are actually negative things to bring you to a place of guilt and condemnation and make sin just come alive. And what I'm saying right here, most people think is heresy. I want to show you some verses that says this right out of your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 55, it says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. What a radical statement is that. The strength of sin is the law. Think about this. God didn't give the law to strengthen you in your battle against sin. He gave the law to strengthen sin In it's battle against you. I know some of you are thinking, that can't be. Tell me what this says, if that isn't what it says. The strength of sin is the law. The law strengthened sin. I'm going to give you other scriptures that will say this exact same thing. Let me ask you this. Why would God give something that would strengthen sin? Because the truth is, sin had already beaten you. And yet many of us didn't realize it because we were comparing ourselves among ourselves and measuring ourselves by ourselves. And the Bible says that is not wise. But we were looking around and we think, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. I'm better than the old hypocrites down here at church. I believe God's gonna accept me because you're comparing yourself. You're better than somebody else. You think God's got a quota. He's got to accept somebody and even though nobody's perfect, he'll take the top 10 percentile or the top 20 percentile. Nope, that's not how it works. You either have to be perfect or you need a savior who was perfect. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you are guilty of it all. Boy, that blows religion out of the saddle because religion will be the first one to tell you that, well, you can't be perfect, but you've got to be as holy as you can and God is going to move in your life proportional to how holy you are. That verse says, if you keep all of the commandments, only miss one of them, eh, you fail. You lose. You don't receive from God. Boy, that is a strong, strong statement. So the truth is, see, that some people thought, well, no, I'm good because I'm not as bad as other people. Who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? If you have sinned, you came short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. If you have sinned, it doesn't matter if it's a little sin. There There are no little sins from God's sight. There are no white sins. There are no acceptable sins. If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of everything. It's like if I had a huge glass in front of you and me, you could shoot a little tiny BB through it and make a small hole or you could drive a truck through it and make a big hole. But if you break it, the whole thing's got to be replaced. It's one unit. God may have a thousand different commands, but if you broke one of them, you broke the standard. You are guilty and you deserve to go to hell. And that's the way that the law is. It says, if you keep all of them but one, you've broken it. That's right. And there's not a single person in here, there's not a single person that has ever lived. It says all of sin comes short of the glory of God, Romans 3:23. If you think that you haven't sinned, that you haven't done anything, that you are worthy on your own, I can guarantee you, you're deceived. And so what did God do to bring this out of deception? Instead of just leaving it to your own judgment, your own s- subjective judgment about, well, I think I'm a good person. God says, you think you're good? Let me show you what my standard is. And he gave a standard that was so holy nobody could ever meet it. And the purpose wasn't to make you try and meet all of these standards because you can't do it. It was rather to show you, you you missed it. Give it up. Hang it up. Quit trying to be self-righteous and accept salvation as a gift, not through your holiness. Man, that's the purpose of the law. And yet people miss this. So why did God give something that strengthens sin? Because the truth is, sin had already beaten you and you didn't know it. And so He just gave something that made sin even stronger in your life. The law makes you actually lust for the very thing that He told you not to have. So that's a radical statement right here. The law wasn't given to set you free from sin. It was given to strengthen sin and literally make sin come alive. I'll be sharing that out of Romans chapter 7. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and in verse 6, this whole chapter is contrasting the Old Testament law with the New Testament grace. It's making a contrast all of these verses. And in verse 6, it says, who hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And as we go on through this, if you were to study this in its context, the letter here is talking about the Old Testament law is what it's talking about. And it says that God made us a minister of the New Testament. If you've got a New Testament, there has to be an Old Testament. They aren't the same thing. It's not the same way. Some of the translations talk about a government, a different system of government. Some of them talk about a different covenant. God has a different way of dealing with us since Jesus came than He did prior to Jesus' coming is what this is talking about. And we are ministers of a New Testament, not of the letter, the Old Testament, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills. But the Spirit gives life. The Old Testament law kills. The Old Testament law kills you. It condemns you. It is not a ministration of life. It's a ministration of death. And it goes on to say this. In the next verse it says, but if the ministration of death Written and engraven in stones was glorious. So that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance. Which glory was to be done away? How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? You know, here's another thing. When I go to talking about the law, there are people say, Well, what you're missing is there was the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And then there is the ceremonial law. That was all of the sacrifices and the rituals and the, past, the feast of Passover and and uh, tabernacles and stuff. And the ceremonial law is done away with, but not the written law. And they try and separate this away so that they can still hold on that you've got to fulfill all of these laws. Let me just ask you this. It says, the ministration of death written and engraven in stones. What part of the law was written and engraven in stone? The 10 commandments. And it is called a ministration of death. And it says, which glory was to be done away. You know what done away means? That it's not working anymore. It's not how we relate to God anymore. Anybody who tries to separate it into the ceremonial law and then the law and stuff and say we're delivered from the ceremonial law, you hadn't got a leg to stand on scripturally. This right here says that you are, that the... Uh, law that was written in stone was a ministry of death. In the New Testament, Jesus came to give us life. Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus came to give us life. And the Old Testament law is a ministration of death. If words mean anything, I don't know why people can't receive this. And again, it's because it's tradition. We've been taught the other way so long and we've embraced it so long. How could this be so? I'm reading it to you from scripture. It's a ministration of death written and engraving in stones. That was glorious. It was good in some ways, but compared to what Jesus came to bring, it has no glory in comparison. That's what it goes on to say in verse... Uh, 8. How how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Verse 9. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory. That's talking about the Old Testament law. It says much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceeding glory. Look at these comparisons. The Old Testament law was a ministration of death, a ministration of condemnation. The New Testament is a ministration of life and a ministration of righteousness. The Old Testament law was to be done away. The New Testament still remains. And this is talking about the difference between law and grace. You are not supposed to relate to God under a system of works. I've got to do this and this and this to get God to do that. That's the Old Testament law mentality. If that's the way you think, that you got to go to church and pay your tithes and live holy to get a prayer answered, then you're under law. You aren't understanding the grace of God. You aren't getting things by what Jesus has done for you. In verse 10, it says, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect. That's talking about the Old Testament law had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. In other words, that's just an old English way of saying that compared to the New Covenant, the Old Covenant wasn't even good. It was good at the time. It was better than nothing. But compared to what we've got, what we've got is so much better. Why would anybody go back to the law where if you do this, the wrath of God's going to come upon you. He's going to hit you with emrods and blasting and mildew and... All of these things. Man, why would we want to go back to that? And yet people are fighting for this right to be condemned and hated by God. In verse 17, for if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. This right here says it is done away. It's not going to be done away. It's already done away. The Old Testament law has ceased. Now it's still here. But it has ceased to be the way that God deals with those who accept the new covenant. Now, those who don't accept the new covenant are under the old covenant. And man, we need to get them out of that because that's not good. We need to get them under the blood and into this new covenant. The old covenant still exists. There is a wrath of God. And if people won't accept the grace of God, they will be judged by the law. But that's not what God wants. He's provided a way, but it's all through Jesus. It's the only way you can get into this new covenant is through Jesus. And it says in verse um, 12, it says, Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face. Let me explain this in case you aren't familiar with this, that when Moses gave the law, he went up into the mountain, and he spent 40 days fasting and praying. The Lord told him that the Israelites had made a golden calf and that he was going to wipe them out. Moses interceded for him and said, God, don't wipe them out. He came down, he got mad, took the Ten Commandments that were written in stone and threw them on the ground and broke them. And contrary to the show of the Ten Commandments, the earth didn't open up at that time. That was a separate instance in Numbers chapter 16 and they kind of ran all this together. But he broke the tablets and then he took the calf, ground it up into powder, put it in the water and made the people eat, drink the gold that they had made this calf out of. He got mad and went right back up into the mountain. So for 80 days, he stayed up on this mountain in the presence of God and God had him uh, make some new tablets and he wrote on them the Ten Commandments again. And when he came down from this second 40 days up there, his face was literally shining He had been in the presence of God so much that his face had absorbed the glory of God and it was radiating it out. And the people were afraid when they saw his face shining. So Moses had to put a veil over his face because people were afraid. They ran away from him. So he put a veil over his face so that the people wouldn't be afraid looking at the glory of God. And then when he'd go in to pray and seek the Lord, he would remove the veil because he was in the presence of God. But when he was with people, he'd put this veil back over. This is what this is talking about. So it says in verse 13, and not as Moses which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look unto the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. I could spend an hour explaining this, but here's the long and the short of it. That veil was like the Old Testament law and it kept us from seeing the real glory of God because we were sinners. People under the old covenant weren't born again. They couldn't stand the glory of God. And so all they could do was get... A revelation of God through the law and that law kept us from really being in the presence of God. In the temple there was something that symbolized this. There was a veil that separated the place where God dwelt from the place where the priest went in and did their service. And this holy of holies... You could only go into one time a year and the veil separated that. And inside the Holy of Holies is where God dwelt. And when Jesus died, that veil was written too from the top to the bottom. And it says in Hebrews chapter 10 that this veil was Christ's flesh. And he has now through his death, he has taken away the veil and there's nothing any longer blocking us. There is no longer any law that is condemning you. It has been removed. And now we have direct access unto God. We should enter boldly under the throne room of grace. And yet the average Christian, because they are still under a law mentality, do not enter into the intimate place of God because the law separates us from that. It condemns us and makes us feel unworthy. And we believe He exists, but we don't have freedom to enter in and fellowship with Him because of the law. So this is what it's referring to. It says, not as Moses which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament which veil is done away in Christ. Uh, But even unto this day when Moses is read the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, talking about their hearts, shall turn to the Lord the veils shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. If you take all of this in context, he's talking about that you don't have these do's and don'ts and all of the restrictions. There's liberty, there's freedom is what he's talking about. Freedom from the law, not just liberty to go do what you want to do, but freedom from being compelled by all of these rules and regulations And then it says in verse 18, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. People have taken that verse out of context for years and have said that we're just changing from glory to glory, step by step, little by little, we're becoming more like Jesus. That's not what this is talking about. We're changing from the glory of the old covenant to the glory of the New Testament is what it's talking about. This isn't talking about incremental steps. You can make that point maybe from other passages of Scripture. But if you take all of this in context, we left the glory of the Old Covenant to the glory of the New Covenant and we with open face, that means the veil's gone, if you get rid of this law mentality and if you can understand and relate to God by the New Covenant, you can enter right into the very presence of God and change from the glory of the Old Testament to this glorious life of the New Testament where there's no condemnation No consciousness of sin. Boy, these are radical statements. Radical, radical statements. Look over in Romans chapter 3. We're going through a lot of scriptures tonight, but I hope to try and convince you. In Romans chapter 3, it says in verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. Now that's a radical statement. Think about this. This is saying that the law is only speaking to those who are under the law. Did you know that most Christians today think everybody's under the law? The law was given for everybody. The law wasn't even given to the Gentiles. Most of the people sitting in this room are Gentile Christians. You should have never been exposed to the law. It wasn't for the Gentiles. They had a big conference about this in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. About did all of the people that were getting converted have to convert to Judaism and start observing all of the feast? Did you know that there are there are Old Testament laws that the feast of the Passover is supposed to be observed forever in all of your generations. Forever. Does that mean that all of us have to observe the Passover? No, but in a sense we do through Jesus. Jesus is our Passover sacrificed for us, but we are under a different covenant. There are certain things that you were commanded to do forever. It's never supposed to change. One of the Old Testament laws is to uh, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And yet in the New Testament, in Colossians two sixteen and 17, it says all of these things were types and shadows of something that is to come. And it lists five things there. It says, don't let any man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Did you know most of us, those first four things, we realize that those have been fulfilled and you don't observe the uh, meat offerings. For instance, pork, most of you will eat pork. Most of you eat uh, things like shrimp and stuff like that. Did you know, according to the Old Testament law, you're defiled if you do that. It's wrong. There are Old Testament laws concerning what you could drink. Most of you don't even know what those are, so I guess you aren't bound by those. And about holy days, most of you don't keep the new moon and all this. And it says of of the new moons, how many of you offered a sacrifice according to what the Bible commanded you did last new moon? How many of you know when the last new moon was? Most of us see, we realize, oh, well those, I, I'm not under that. Well, in the same verse, verse 16, it says, or of the Sabbath days. Most Christians will sit here and say, oh, yeah, we don't have to observe all these dietary laws. Christ redeemed us. Second Peter chapter four says, if anybody says that you can't eat certain meat, it is a doctrine of the devil. Pretty strong statement. And most of us say, oh yeah, I'm free from that. I'm free from the drink laws. I'm free from observing the feast. I'm free from offering sacrifices every new moon. Every time you have a child, you don't have to offer a blood sacrifice and pay a a duty the way that they did in the Old Testament. We say that we're free from those things. But then the Sabbath, oh, we still got to keep the Sabbath. Did you know that the Sabbath isn't Sunday? The Sabbath is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So does this mean we're all supposed to become Seventh-day Adventist? No, because they aren't keeping the Sabbath either. They would say that they are, but Hebrews chapter 4 shows you that the Sabbath, just like it says in Colossians 2, 17, they were types and shadows of something that was to come. And they were strictly enforced under the Old Testament. People were killed for breaking the Sabbath, such as the man who picked up sticks, to make a fire so that he could eat something. He was killed in Numbers chapter 15. The Sabbath was strictly enforced, but it was only a shadow of something that was to come. And it was picturing a relationship with God. I've got a teaching entitled, Our Sabbath Rest. If you don't have that, you ought to get it. It is a powerful, powerful, powerful teaching. It's awesome. I'm not going to teach it right now, but it's really important. The Sabbath is not an observance of a day. It's a relationship with God. Hebrews chapter four makes that very clear. And see, some people say, oh yeah, we're redeemed from those first four things, but the Sabbath we got. How can you just sit there and dissect the word like that and not be honest with the context? If you're redeemed from those first four things, you're redeemed from the fifth thing. And did you know that the keeping the Sabbath was the fifth of the 10 commandments? And it's no longer in effect, not the observance of a day. Now we live the Sabbath rest. I know I'm messing with some of y'all's heads, but you know what? If you don't change something, you aren't going to change. Unless you change the way you think, you aren't going to get any different results. It says, we know that whatsoever things were, were written in the law were written to them who were under the law. The law wasn't even intended for most of us in this room and yet we've been established and grounded and schooled in the law. And we are under condemnation that we shouldn't have ever been under. What was the purpose of the law? It says again in Romans chapter 3 verse 19. Now we know that what thingssoever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, and here's the purpose, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty. For those of you that had an excuse, well, you don't understand. I was raised in a dysfunctional family and that's the reason I'm this way and I had this happen and I had that happen and and you got all of these excuses. The law doesn't accept excuses. The law doesn't take into account motives. The law doesn't take into account extenuating circumstances. It doesn't judge anything. You go out and pick up sticks on the Sabbath day, it doesn't matter if you were hungry and it doesn't matter if you meant well by it, you die. You do something wrong, boom. There is no mercy under the law. The law doesn't make exemptions. It was just without anything, it was to stop your excuses. The law stopped your mouth from making excuses and made you guilty before God. You know, if you feel guilty and condemned, you know where it came from? The law. The law is what gives you this sense of guilt. In verse 20, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You cannot be justified by the law, by keeping rules, living holy, doing certain things. Nobody can be justified. Look at verse 28. I'm going to come back, but in verse 28 of this same chapter, it says, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Faith is what produces justification in you, not keeping a set of rules and living up to a standard of holiness. Man, if words mean anything, how do people get around this? Romans chapter 5 verse 1, being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God. The only way you can be justified is by faith, not by living up to some code, not by doing something. And yet the vast majority of what's called Christianity today is telling people, if you will come to church and live holy, and if you'll join this church, and if you'll do this and this and this, then you'll be justified in the sight of God. And they are linking your salvation and your justification to what you do. The Bible says that is not the purpose of the law. No flesh will be justified by the law. Nobody. It cannot happen. This is against The message of the vast majority of the church today. And yet I'm reading scripture to you. Because the law gives knowledge of sin. It doesn't give knowledge of salvation. It doesn't tell you the way out. All it does is tell you you're guilty. You deserve judgment. You should die. You're wrong. That's all the law will do. It'll never compliment you. And the law will never show you anything good. If you did 99 things right and one thing wrong, the law will condemn you over the one thing wrong and make you guilty. It won't give you a compliment and say, well, you did 99 things right. You're doing better. You're getting closer, but you still missed it. Just try a little harder. That's not the law. The law will sit there and condemn you and make you feel if you miss one thing, like you are guilty of committing everything. I was under the law more than most of you in here. I remember one time I fasted and prayed and studied the word all day long. I read all of the New Testament except one book in the New Testament. I spent 17 hours studying the word. And I was beginning to feel real smug about that. And I was praying and thank, saying, thank you, Father, that I'm not like this publican over here. I fast twice in the week. I read the Bible 17 hours today and I was beginning to feel really smug. And you know what? The law jumped up and bit me and said, you were up 18 hours. You wasted one hour. <laughs> and I, before the day was over, I was, oh God, I'm sorry that I didn't serve you with all of my heart and I was condemned. Some of you think, boy, you were weird. That's what the law will do to you. The law will literally make you crazy. That's what Paul said over in Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Man, it's demonic deception. It's foolish. It's stupid to be legalistic. Nobody can ever serve God and earn it. See, this message is offensive to people who are really pleased with how holy they are. Because you're saying, all of my goodness doesn't give me a leg up on you. That's exactly right. Now, if you live a good life, it may keep you from being condemned in ways that other people that have gone out and murdered and stolen and done things that hurt them and have destroyed their body. There are benefits to living a holy life, but as far as God, if you are holy versus the person sitting next to you who's been a sinner, all of these things, both of you can access God through Jesus and get the exact same results on the basis of what Jesus did. And you don't have any advantage over the other person. You may not have some of the hindrances of the devil, some of the condemnation, but you don't have any greater access to God. You have to access God through Jesus and not through your goodness. It goes on to say in verse uh, 23, or where am I? Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. This is so offensive. You you can be righteous without keeping the law, without doing all of these things. That's exactly what the Bible says. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's saying that the Old Testament law prophesied that it wasn't complete. It didn't save anybody. It prophesied that there was coming a Messiah. In the Old Testament law, it gave you all of these standards, but then it gave sacrifices. And those sacrifices were all pictures of Jesus coming and it prophesied. And so there isn't any contradiction between the new covenant and the old covenant. If you use them correctly, the old covenant led people to a savior. It showed you your need for a savior. And as Galatians chapter three says, it shuts you up unto faith. But if you try and mix the two so that you're part law and part grace, it's impossible. They're contrary to each other. They, they negate each other. The Old Testament law was to bring you to the end of yourself so that you would trust in Jesus as a Savior, but it was incapable of saving you. It goes on to say in the next verse, it says, "...even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace." Man, there's a lot in those verses. I got a bunch of verses to read. Let me just skip on. I pray that you will study that. That's powerful. In chapter four, in verse 13, it says, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which be of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. It's showing you that the law did not ever put anybody in right standing with God. God didn't accept Abraham because he deserved it. Abraham did a lot of things wrong, right? Lied about his wife twice, was willing to let another man commit adultery with his wife to save his own neck. You know, sometimes we read over that in Scripture and people don't think about this. But if somebody wanted to come and and take Jamie from me and I said, I've never seen this lady before. Help yourself, Uh, uh... I, I'm looked the other way, and if something like that happened, I guarantee you it would be right for me to be scandalized over that. That's wrong. I'm not taking care of my wife. Abraham was wrong. Abraham didn't do it once; he did it twice. Abraham was a self-centered, fearful guy that had a lot of problems. He married his half sister. It didn't take much to entice him to go into Sarah's handmaid. He was a willing participant. Abraham did a lot of things wrong, but you know what he did, right? God said, count the stars in the sky or count the grains of sand on the seashore. So shall your seed be. And Genesis 15, 6 says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Did you know the word counted right there is the exact Old Testament equivalent of imputed? It was imputed unto him. God gave him, put it to his account, right standing with God. Not because he did things right, he did a lot of things wrong, but because he believed God. And it was faith that made him right with God is what these verses are saying. In verse 15, it says, because the law works wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is saying that the Old Testament law releases wrath. If any of you feel like God's angry with you and upset with you, you know where you got it? Because you are under the Old Testament law mentality you are still thinking that I've got to do these things to please God. Faith is what pleases God. I ministered in a church 20-something years ago. There was about three or 400 people there. And I said, how many of you want to please God more than anything else? Did you know out of three or 400 people, I think every hand in the place went up? And I said, now, how many of you really please God? And out of three or 400 hands, there was two hands, a 9 and a 12-year-old kid. And I said, no wonder you're depressed, discouraged, stressed, because your number one goal, you said, is to please God. And there's only two out of 300 or 400 that believe you do it. And then I begin to start teaching on what pleases God. Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's not your actions. God isn't pleased with you because you've done everything right. Some of you think, oh, but I'm doing things better than I've ever done. Compared to God's standard, there isn't a person in here that isn't missing it. You miss it all of the time. I've missed it this week. I have done things wrong. I say things. I offend people. There's not a person in here that does everything right. You miss it all of the time. Maybe compared to me, you might look good. But compared to God, God hasn't ever had anybody worthy working for him yet. God's never had anybody qualified working for him yet. From God's standpoint, none of us deserve anything. And you've got to recognize that it's not your actions that please God. It's whether or not you put faith in Jesus. If you made Jesus your Lord, God looks at you through Jesus and He's pleased with you. Regardless of whether you are. Some of you don't like your shape. Some of you don't like the way you look. Some of you don't like the way you act. You don't like the way you think. You made mistakes here and there and you get down on yourself. God sees you different than you see yourself. God is pleased with you when you're displeased with yourself. How can two walk together except they be agreed? You're always looking at everything wrong with you. God's looking at everything right. Again, you ought to look get my teaching on spirit, soul and body because God is a spirit. John 4:24 and he sees you in the spirit and in the spirit you're a new creation and there is no sin. There is no inadequacy. You're perfect. You are as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus is in your spirit. And God is looking at you that way and God's just thrilled with you. God thinks you're awesome. God carries your picture in his wallet. And you're going around thinking, oh man, I know I'm saved, but God's so upset with me. And you wonder why you aren't enjoying the benefits of your salvation. The law works wrath. Look in chapter 5, Romans chapter 5. In verse 20, it says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. The law was given to make the offense, sin, abound, to make it bigger. I've used my own self as a testimony. I didn't do as many sins as most people in this room, but you know what? The sins I committed were big to me. It just killed me. It destroyed me. I had more condemnation than some of you that were doing dope, adultery, just rebelling at God, hating God. Many of you never felt as guilty and condemned and sinful as I did. The law makes the offense abound, but where sin abounds, grace abounds greater. But the law made sin abound. Look in Romans chapter six in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law, but under grace. Let me turn it around and say it this way. If sin is having dominion over you, you aren't under grace. You're under a law. Law strengthens sin. Romans, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The law made sin abound on the inside. uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. If If you are not victorious over sin, if it seems like there are sins that just dominate you and you can't seem to shake it loose, you are not under grace. God has put you under grace, but you haven't accepted it yet. You're still operating under law because the law is what works wrath. The law makes sin come alive. The law strengthens sin. It makes sin abound. And you will have dominion over sin if you are under grace. But if you are under law, then sin will have dominion over you. I know some of you think, well, this is opposite everything I've been taught. This is what the Bible says. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. For what what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. But notice, he says, we are not under the law. What part of we are not under the law do we not understand? And yet I can guarantee you, if I hadn't led up to this and been reading these scriptures, if somebody would have caught you out on the street and says, are you under the law? Do you have to keep the law? The vast majority of you that are here, the fanatics, Friday night would have said, oh yeah, we are not under the law. Look in chapter seven in verse four. Wherefore my brethren you are also become dead to the law by the body of Christ that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead that we should bring forth fruit unto God. We are dead to the law. What part of dead to the law do we not get? The next verse. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, the motions of sin. You could say, that the law allowed sin to operate. It gave life to it. The motions of sin, the actions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. The law produced death. We already read that, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But now we are delivered from the law. What part of delivered from the law do we not understand? We are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, talking about our old man, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Now see, some of you might think that I'm saying, well, the law is sin. No, the law isn't sin if you'll use it correctly. First Timothy chapter three, I believe it's verse nine says, we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing that the law isn't made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, for the disobedient, for whoremongers, adulterers, etc. Who's righteous? Any person who's born again is the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5, 21. He made him, God the Father, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. When you get born again, you are the righteousness of God. The law is not made for a righteous man. If you are born again, the law isn't for you. The law is for people who are not in the covenant to show them their need for a savior and so that they will forsake trying to please God by their own actions and will accept salvation as a gift. Here's an illustration of what we're talking about that I ministered in uh, Houston one time and it was in a hotel and there was about 300 people or so in this meeting. And there was a drunk that was walking by and he heard the meeting and he stood at the back for a while and then he came in. And in the middle of my preaching, he just stood up and started yelling at me. And I tried to respond to him and he, wouldn't, he was incoherent. He was drunk or either high on dope or something. And uh, finally, I just commanded him, sit down and shut up in Jesus' name. And he just plopped right down. And I went on and finished the service. And then after the service, he came up to the front And I started telling this guy about the goodness of God. And I said, look, brother, I don't know what's wrong with you, but God loves you. God can set you free. God can get you delivered from the dope or from the alcohol. You could be a new person. And I started telling him about the goodness of God. And this guy said, I am God. (laughs) He says, I am God. And he got off on this weird whatever he was into. And you know what? This guy needed to realize that he wasn't God. So you know what I did? I took the law like a club and I beat this guy to a pulp. I said, you sorry, ungodly thing. And I started showing him what the word of God says. And I took the word and I started exposing sin and within minutes, I had this guy just crying in a puddle of tears, oh God, have mercy on me. That's the purpose of the law is for people who think that they're good. I guarantee you, I can whittle you down to size in a moment with the law. You think that God owes you something? Let me show you what the standard of God is and I can make every one of you feel bad. That's the purpose of the law. The law is good if you'll use it for that purpose, but if you try and tell a person who's already come to Jesus and has accepted relationship with God through Jesus and then you start preaching the law to them, you're doing them a disservice because you're making sin come alive. You're strengthening sin. You're bringing knowledge of sin. You're condemning them. And it's not positive, it's actually a negative. And yet we have all been using this negative motivation to serve God out of a fear of punishment instead of understanding how awesome He is and serving Him out of love. So it says in verse 9, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid... Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. The word concupiscence means uncontrolled, unbridled lust. The law makes you lust. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. If you put up a fence and say thou shalt not cross this, you're just like a horse. You'll stretch as far over that fence as you can and you'll sit there and be straining yourself to eat the grass on the other side of the fence when you're knee deep in grass over here. We just long for that which we're forbidden not to have. It says that the law wrought in us all manner of concupiscence for without the law sin was dead. Is sin dead in your life or is sin dominating you? If sin is dominating you, if it seems like you are driven to lust, it's because the law is working in your life. You haven't understood and you had not got free from the law. Boy, those are awesome statements. It says in verse uh, 8, But sin, taking occasion by the command, Oh, I've already read that. Wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The commandment makes sin come alive on the inside of you. That is one radical statement. And in verse 10, And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. We've already read three statements, I think, where it says that the ministration of death, the ministration of condemnation, the ministration works wrath, etc. All of those things are saying the same thing. For sin taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. This is the reason that God gave the commandment was to make sin exceedingly sinful, terrible, bad, to make you feel rotten so that you would quit thinking that you could save yourself and approach unto God because you deserve it. And instead, you just come and say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I've already read probably two or three dozen scriptures on this. Let me give you just a few more over here in Hebrews chapter 8, chapter 7. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 7 first. The whole book of Hebrews is saying this same thing. Hebrews chapter 7 in verse 18. It says, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. You know, the commandment that he's talking about is the Old Testament law. There is a disannulling of the Old Testament law because it was weak and unprofitable. Very offensive to most people. But that's scripture. There is a disannulling. You know, the word "annul" means to just... Uh, do away with if you have a marriage and if you get it annulled it's like you were never married the word disannulled is a strengthened form of that that literally means to abolish just not only do away with but totally obliterate it's abolished it says that christ abolished death it's the same word This says that the Old Testament law has literally been abolished. It's been disannulled because of the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. In verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. You can't draw nigh unto God through the Old Testament law. It won't make you perfect. It won't give you relationship with God. But if you would enter into the new covenant grace and start just receiving it through Jesus, then you could have relationship with Him. In verse uh, 22, it says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better covenant. Here again, it's contrasting. The old covenant is not as good as the new covenant. We got a better covenant. Why do people long to hold on to the old covenant? You know, I could spend an hour or two explaining that, but basically the old covenant is something that you can understand and grab hold of with your natural mind. A carnal man, a lost man can understand. Give or God's going to take it out in doctor bills. I actually used to go to a church that the preacher preached that on tithing. He would literally jump up on this portion and put stand on this and lean over. And I mean, he would scream and yell and spit and everything. If you don't pay your tithes, God will take it out of doctor bills. He'll put you in the hospital and take it from you if you don't pay. You give or God's going to get it. You know what? A lost man can shell out 10%, man. It's, it's, it's not like God the Father. It's more like the Godfather. <laughs> you pay him your protection money or God will get you, praise God. And that's the way that most churches are preaching it. If you don't pay your tithes, God's going to get you. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but I've been trying to motivate you to give because of all of the good things that come out of it. And it's a, it's a way of trusting God instead of the wrath and the punishment of God. People will say, but uh, Malachi chapter three, verse eight, you've robbed me in tithes and in offerings. You're cursed with the curse. And New Testament Christians will preach that. That's wrong. Tithing is still in effect. It was in effect in the 14th chapter of the book of Genesis before the law was given. It's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 7. We still are supposed to tithe, but not under that law. Not You aren't cursed with the curse if you don't. God's not mad at you. And if you don't believe that, and if you, oh, well, I still believe we're supposed to keep Malachi 3, eight. Well, then what about that portion of the verse that says you've robbed him in tithes and offerings? Come on. Tithe means 10%, but offerings is above that. If you go back and add up all of the tithes and the offerings, it adds up to 33%. If you're going to live under Malachi 3.8, unless you're giving 33%, you're cursed with the curse. You better crawl out from under that Old Testament law, praise God. <laughs> New Testament's a lot better. You aren't cursed with the curse. Are you, are you not supposed to give now? You're stupid if you don't give. God gave you seed. Eat some of it and plant some of it and keep the thing going. You're just stupid if you eat it all. But God loves you stupid. Amen. He's not mad at you, but you will have a lack and want if you don't plant some of what you've got. That's just stupid. Was that too subtle? Anybody missed that point? Look at this in Hebrews chapter 8 in verse, um, in verse 6. It says, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises, contrasting the new covenant with the old covenant. They are not the same. They are not one in the same. You don't just mix them together. They're two different covenants. Ours is a better covenant, verse 7, for... uh, If that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he saith... And this is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31 in the Old Testament. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will uh, make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord... The first covenant was dependent upon people obeying it. And because of that, that covenant could never make it because nobody could ever keep it. So the new covenant, all you have to do is believe and receive it. You don't have to live up to a standard. And that's one of the reasons that our covenant is so much better. In verse 9 it says, "...not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. In other words, there will be an intuitive knowledge instead of something external where you're beaten with a whip and made like a horse or a mule to go straight because of all of the punishments and stuff. It will be in your heart to serve God is the point that he's making. And in verse 11 it says, And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. People interpret this scripture all of the time that every one of the Jews is going to know God. Every Jew is going to come to the Lord. This is talking about the new covenant that we are under. We are now the house, the spiritual seed of Israel. You can read that in Romans chapter 3. It says, He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, but he that's inwardly in the heart. And this is talking about that when you get born again, you don't have to just believe it because somebody told you about God. They may introduce you, but you will know it firsthand. You will have it revealed. He'll give you a heart. He will put his laws in your heart. You will know God personally. God doesn't have any grandchildren. Every person has to have their own special, individual, personal relationship with God. That's what this is talking about. It says, they will all know me from the least unto the greatest. Every single born again person has their personal relationship with God. And in verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. What a radical statement is that? You go into the average church and say, God is merciful to you if you're unrighteous and God doesn't remember your sins. And I guarantee you, you'd be stoned to death. You'd be kicked out of that church. Some of you are thinking, and if you preach this, what is going to restrain people from sin? Man, people are just going to take this as a license to sin. Well, you know what? People are doing pretty good at sinning without a license. (laughs) And it's like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ would constrain you. If you, could ever un- if you were truly born again, and if you understand how good God has been to you, which most people don't understand this because we're under the law that is just constantly showing His wrath and punishment. If you ever got a glimpse of how good God is, you would serve Him better accidentally than you've ever served Him on purpose before. Love will cause you to live a holier life than anything else. And you know, praise God that he gave me this opportunity and revealed the gospel to me and called me to preach it. Because there's a lot of people that if I had lived, if I was living in sin, if I had mistresses everywhere, and if I was stealing money, and if I was doing some of the things that so many preachers are doing today, then you know what? People would look at me and say, no wonder you preach grace. It's just an occasion for you to go live in sin. But you know what? I could stack my holiness. This is not the right way to do it. Paul said that I'm talking like a lost man, but because people were thinking carnal, he got down there and he says, I'll talk carnal with you. If you just want to talk carnal, I bet you I could stack my holiness, my standard of righteousness up against any person in this room. And and there might be a few people that would beat me, but very few. I am living a holy life the grace of Christ does not lead me into sin. I'm living holier than most of you. So you cannot use this argument that if you preach grace, it'll just cause people to go live in sin. Titus chapter two, verse 11 says, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. If a person truly understands the grace of God, it'll cause you to live holier, not less holy. But God says he will be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant he hath made the first old now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. The Old Testament law. How many scriptures do I have to read for you to understand that the law is not for the righteous man. It is not for the New Testament believer. And I didn't read them all. Tomorrow I'm going to talk from Galatians chapter 3 and the whole chapter is showing you that the law was only temporary until the seed should come and Christ was the seed. There's many, 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 many more scriptures. I've only used about, I don't know, 20 or 30 scriptures, but how many scriptures do you have to have to understand something? There's very few things in the Bible as established as the fact that we have a new covenant. You even have it in here, the old covenant and see here, right here, it says the New Testament. That means that the other one is old. This is the new one. This is the superseding. And yet very few Christians have moved into the new covenant. We're living under the wrath, the judgment, and we wonder why things aren't better. I'm telling you, if you have the wrong image of God, which the law gave the wrong image... God wasn't wrong in giving it, but people interpreted it wrong. You know, I'm going to make this really quick. I'm I'm trying to quit. I'll say this real quickly, but I had a horse given to me, and this horse, long story, but nobody could catch this horse. It was named El Shaddai, which meant more than enough, and that horse was more than enough. And anyway, when when it was a yearling, they put a halter on this horse. And it had been out in pasture for three years and its halter was growing into its muzzle. And the people were moving and they had to have the horse gone by a certain date or they were just going to put it down. And so they gave me this horse. They gave me two horses. And I paid two cowboys $350 a piece to go catch those horses and break them for me. And they both went into the hospital. Those horses nearly killed them. They were just wild horses. And so it was just a few days away from when those horses were going to have to be put down And I was praying and God told me how to catch that horse. I hadn't got time to tell you, but I caught that horse. And when I caught that horse, I'm not a cowboy. I didn't know what I was doing. And that horse nearly killed itself. It went berserk. It ran and it was spitting blood out of every part and things out of the other part. And and that horse was running around in a circle around this railroad tie. And I got so scared. I went out and started to try and cut the rope Jamie was with me, and I mean, it was scary. It, I've never, that horse, El Shaddai, was demon-possessed. <laughs> it was bad. And I, went, I was going to go cut the rope, but I, I couldn't get in there because the horse was running around so fast. And finally, this horse just pulled on that rope as tight as it could, and it was a slipknot, and it, ch- it choked it, and it passed out and fell on the ground. So I went and sat on this horse's neck. And I took that old halter off and put a new one on and tied it in between two railroad ties. And when it finally came to and set up, it would just sit there and shake and I could sit on it and ride it and it was broke. I broke that horse's spirit. Those of you that are horse lovers, I apologize. I didn't mean to do it. I know there'll be somebody get mad at me and say, you should never do this. I didn't know it. I just—I actually saved that horse's life, believe it or not. And so anyway, my point is, this was a beautiful Arabian horse, and I'd drive up, and I could see that horse in the pasture, and it'd have its head up, and it was a beautiful horse, and it'd see my green pickup, and it'd put its head down, and it'd just go shaking <laughs> like this. And this horse had a totally wrong impression of me because of something I did, but it didn't understand that it was a desperate act, and it was going to die if I didn't do it, and. Maybe that's not the right way to break a horse, but I saved that horse's life. It would have been dead if it wasn't for me. And so I'd get that horse and I'd talk to it and sing to it and pray in tongues over it. And I, and I kept this horse for two or three years. And it always, every time it saw me, you could, if you were riding it, it, you could feel it shake. It would just shake like this. It was petrified of me. It had a totally wrong impression of who I was. And I, I kept telling it. I said, I'm really not a mean guy. I said, I'm... I'm a really nice guy. I'm trying to help you, not hurt you. But it never did understand. I finally gave it away and they made it a, a bucking and brocco on the rodeo because it was good at that. <laughs> but anyway, here's my point. Did you know what? When God gave the law, it was actually a stopgap measure. If he hadn't given the law, the human race would have been so polluted there wouldn't have been a virgin left for Jesus to have been born through He didn't want to give the law. He waited 2,000 years, but he finally did it because it was either that or the destruction of the human race before he could bring the seed. And so he did it and it had negative effects and people misinterpreted the true nature of God and thought that God is this mean, harsh, angry God and that is not God. Jesus showed us the express image of the Father and He extended mercy to a very woman taken in the act of adultery. And instead of condemning her the way that the law said and killing her, he extended mercy to her because Jesus was the perfect representation. That's the way that Jesus, that God the Father really was. Jesus represented him perfectly. The law wasn't incorrect, it was incomplete. And it didn't show us God correctly. It gave people an impression of a mean, angry, harsh God. Jesus showed us a God who was willing to die for the publicans, for the sinners to show mercy and grace to people. And he brought in a new covenant where he wasn't imputing people's sins unto him. But the problem is his followers have gone back to the old covenant, have been misrepresenting God and imputing people's sins and driving people from God. Most people believe God exists. They just don't think that they could ever live up to the standard and they're mad because they've tried and failed and they've been condemned sometime or another and they just don't want to... They just can't serve a God like that. If people knew how good God was, everyone would love Him. But we have misrepresented God. We need to realign our message. We need to get back to the grace of God. Man, I've got a lot more to share. A lot more. I've just barely gotten started. So we'll continue again tomorrow. And I encourage you to come back if you can. Please get these CDs and DVDs because I guarantee you, you aren't going to hear very many people say what I've said. It's right out of the Bible, but... That doesn't have anything to do with what most people preach. I encourage you to go get this and listen to it and it will change your life. Is there anyone here tonight who doesn't know Jesus? Maybe you have been going to church thinking, well, all right, I know that God exists and I'm going to go to church and I hope I'm good enough for Him to accept me. Everything I've preached tonight is that no, you aren't good enough. You can just receive salvation as a free gift. It's not based... On your actions and how much you go to church and do all of these things. If you aren't born again, you can receive salvation as a free gift tonight. And if you're already born again, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit in this gift of speaking in tongues. I can guarantee you, every person in here needs it. Every person. Jesus said, You receive power. ...when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. If you haven't received the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues... ...that's not all that there is, but that's part of it... ...then I can guarantee you, you don't have that power. And you also don't have this quickening power of the Holy Spirit to explain things to you. If I had time, I could explain to you how I got this revelation... ...and how Paul got this revelation. He talked about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He spent three and a half years taking the Word and praying in tongues and getting an interpretation. Speaking in tongues will open up the Bible to you like nothing you have ever done before. The Word will become brand new. You will begin to understand things you've never done. There might even be some people in here who have the gift of speaking in tongues, but sad to say, many people only spoke in tongues just to prove to themselves they got the Holy Spirit, and then they never use it. You need to be speaking in tongues every single day. You need to be drawing on this. But speaking in tongues will open up the Word of God in revelation to you. If you don't have it, you need it. Is there anybody in here who needs one or both of those? Either you need to be born again, make Jesus your Savior, or you're already born again, but you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues. Anybody here like that? If that's you, I'd like you to raise your hand so that I can pray with you and help you to receive here tonight. Here's a hand over here. Anybody else? Here's another one. We've already had close to 200 people come receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in two services. And I know that we had maybe 100 new people here tonight, but I don't want to let you go without an opportunity to receive, because this is essential. Every person in here needs to be born again and needs the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Somebody says, do you believe you have to have the Holy Spirit to go to heaven? No, I don't believe that. You can get to heaven quicker if you don't have the Holy Spirit. (laughs) because you aren't going to have any power in your life and you'll die of something early. You can go to heaven without the Holy Spirit, but why would you want to? (laughs) Man, it's not that you have to have the Holy Spirit, you get to have the Holy Spirit. What a tremendous privilege. You know, if you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward and we want to pray with you right now and help you to receive. Praise the Lord. Come right down here and let us minister to you and help you to receive. It's going to change your life. Hi. Hi. Praise the Lord. Just stand right here in front of me, facing me. Don't stand behind each other. Stand beside each other because we're going to have people that come up here and lay hands on you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Isn't this awesome? Thank you, Father. You know, counting those who have already come, this is probably 200 people that have received the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, there was only 120 and they turned the world right side up. You know, if you were to to really understand and take full advantage of what you're receiving right here, this could change Minneapolis, St. Paul, or wherever you're from. This is really powerful. I guarantee you, it'll change your life. You know, most of the people in here have been here through two services now, and I've already led everybody in a prayer, and they've seen me minister the baptism of the Holy Spirit. People so that they could uh, nearly recite it themselves. So you know what I'm going to ask you to do? We've got people here, our prayer ministers, and I'm going to ask you, we've got a book that I want to give you that will explain either the new birth, if you need that, or... The Baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we want to give you this book. And what I'm going to ask is that Ashley right here is the guy that runs our prayer ministry, he and Melinda. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, to just go with him into this room, and he will pray with you and help you to receive salvation and or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He'll give you this free book, and we want you to understand what's happening. It really doesn't do you any good unless you really understand. And so many people just pray for something and they may even pray a few words in another language. But if you don't understand it, Satan is going to come immediately and steal away the word. So we, want, we would like you to go and let them just pray for you for just a moment, give you this book, help you any way they can. And I believe that this is going to radically change your life. Is that okay? Amen. If you would, just follow Ashley right here. It'll only take a few minutes, but this will change your life. Praise God. Thank you for coming. Praise the Lord. Isn't this great? Hi, how are you? Praise the Lord. Just follow them over there. That'll be good. Praise the Lord. Isn't that awesome? I tell you all, we've seen a lot of people's lives change this week. I'd like I ask our prayer ministers, if they would, to come up here. And these are people, they've been here an hour before every service. They've been staying over an hour after every service praying with people. And, you know, I've been too busy to really get any reports, but I know we've seen a lot of healings. We see a lot of miracles happen every single time. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to come. Some people think I'm the only one that can pray for you, but that's because you're under the law. If you understood grace, you'd recognize that we all are one in Christ. And there are people that have special anointings for healing, but I'm not one of them. I've seen three people raised from the dead. I've seen blind eyes open and other things. But it's just Joe Blow believer at doing what the Word says. It says, these that believe will lay their hands on the sick and they shall recover. Every person can do it. And these people have been taught. The word of God. They know the truths that God has shown me. Melinda taught these people and they've practiced and we've already seen miracles. So I'm just trying to say that you don't have to have me pray for you. These people can pray for you. Pastor Bobby Ray has seen multitudes, thousands and thousands of people healed. Alan gave his testimony on uh, Thursday night. He was healed a year ago last night of a massive stroke that killed one third of his brain. And here he is alive and well and working. Many, many miracles right here. So I just want to encourage you to come and look to Jesus as your healer, not a person. Amen. If you would like prayer for anything, just get up out of your seat right now and come forward. We've got these people stationed at the aisles and they're going to direct you towards a person so that everybody won't stand in front of Pastor Bobby or just one person. Please cooperate with them. And if you will come and let them pray for you, we believe that we're going to see miracles happen. Praise the Lord. Last night I stayed and we called out a lot of healings. We had a lot of people healed. We had deafness healed. people that their ears opened up sitting out there. And so you're welcome to stay and pray with us. We will operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and see miracles happen. But if you need to leave, thank you for staying and uh, thank you for being here tonight. Please get the CDs and or DVDs of these meetings. You need that. And also all of the other material. But if you need to go, you're welcome to go. God bless you. Remember, tomorrow morning is 10 o'clock and then tomorrow night is 6 o'clock. It's not 7. It's 6 o'clock tomorrow night because our crew tears everything down and normally works till 2 or 3 in the morning this way they can get to bed at 12 or 1 so we start at 6 o'clock tomorrow night God bless you you're dismissed if you need to be praise the Lord thank you Jesus thank you Father Father, we just agree with all of these. And thank you, Jesus, that by your stripes, we've already been healed. We believe it's already done. We believe that you put on the inside of us the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That it's inside of us. It's not out there. We aren't having to pray your power down. Thank you that we are releasing what you've already given us. And you said that death and life are in the power of our tongue. We speak death to sickness, to disease, to cancer, to AIDS, to ALS, to sugar diabetes. I curse these things with my words and command those things to die in the name of Jesus. And Father, we loose life with our words and release your anointing to flow through people's body and bring them back to health for their bodies to recover in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Somebody here has strained your neck. You can't turn your neck from side to side or bend it like that. You have pain in your neck. It could be from an injury or just, I don't know what it is. But if you've got pain in your neck, here's the Lord ministering to you and setting you free. That's nothing but the devil. He is a pain in the neck. Amen. If that's you, I want you right where you are to stand and raise your hand so I can see who it is that I'm praying for. I believe God is going to heal this neck pain. If that's you and you're you're believing God and you believe that this is for you, stand and raise your hand and we're going to pray for you right now. Father, I pray for all of these that are standing with their hands raised. We release your anointing and we command this pain in the neck to be gone right now somebody's got a pinched nerve. There's it. It's unpinched right now. It's free. Right there's the anointing of God. You can begin to move around. Father, we thank you that all pain is gone. Thank you that freedom of movement. Somebody's neck was fused. I don't understand that, but you were unable to move it. You had to kind of move your shoulders, move your whole body. Here's the Lord healing you. Now you can move your neck again. Whatever was the problem, whatever they fused your neck for, it's healed. You can move it now in the name of Jesus. We command pain to be gone. All pain leave right now in the name of Jesus. And Father, I loose your anointing to flow through this neck and to heal them. Some of you felt all right when you're awake, but when you go to sleep and you stay in the same position for a long time, your neck really goes to hurting you. Here's the healing power of God. You're going to be able to go to bed, sleep, and you won't have that neck pain that you've had for years. Praise God. There's the anointing of God. I believe God is setting you free. Pain, you be gone now. And healing, you come. Thank you, Father, that these people are healed by the stripes of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Y'all believe that? How many of you have already felt your pain leave? Here's three right here. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Man, that's a lot of people that have already seen their pain leave. And you know what? I believe every one of you are healed. Who in here was the one that had your neck fused? You couldn't move it. You had restricted movement. Who was that? Whether you've already seen a difference or not, if you had your neck fused where you couldn't move it. Where are you? Over here? Oh, it's the person that's sitting down. Can you move your neck? Does it move now? You know, if I could get somebody just to lay hands on her. The Lord called that out. This neck is moving tonight. He doesn't call these things out. He wants everybody to be healed, but he'll only call out things that people are ready to receive. And I believe that that neck is moving tonight in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you. We agree and we receive it in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. You know, I believe the Lord is is uh, ministering to people with sugar diabetes right now. If you've been struggling with that, I believe that the power of the Lord is present to heal you of sugar diabetes right now. If that's you, I want you to stand and raise your hand, and we're going to pray. And I believe that the healing power of God is going to set you free from this sugar diabetes. I prayed with a man a number of years ago who had a monitor that took his uh, blood sugar level and he showed me his reading that day and it was 1,100. He said he should have been dead. And I prayed with him and he came back six months later and it stored 45 days. And he says, this is the day you prayed with me. It was 1,100. Then it went down to like 1,060 and it just started going down. And in 22 days, he went from 1,100 to 115 and he was totally healed. And I believe that God is healing people here tonight. I believe that God is resurrecting your pancreas and it's going to begin to start working. Father, right now, we just thank you for healing. And we rebuke sugar diabetes. We command this to leave these bodies now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Sugar diabetes be gone. Leave them now. And all of the effects of it on their body, get out of their body now in the name of Jesus. And Father, I loose your anointing to touch their pancreas and make it produce insulin, produce the right amount of insulin. Come alive, resurrect. I speak resurrection life into pancreas and command them to come alive and work. Produce this insulin now. Father, help people to lose weight, to take care of themselves and not allow this back in. But we thank you for a miraculous healing and deliverance from sugar diabetes right now. We agree and we receive it. And we loose this power right now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we believe that we receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, I told this man that was healed specifically... I said, now, your pancreas isn't going to just all of a sudden put out a surge of insulin to catch up for all that it hasn't been doing. It'll just start working. And it'll take a period of time before it'll replace the insulin that you need in your body. So he checked it for 22 days, and it took about probably 10 of those days before it was down in an acceptable level. And so anyway, I believe that the healing power of God is in your body, but you'll have to walk this out. People always ask me, well, should I take my insulin or should I quit? I can't tell you that. It depends where your faith is. But this is what the Holy Spirit is given to you for. The Holy Spirit, if you will pray, He will show you what you're supposed to do. Whether you come off cold turkey, whether you wean yourself. If you do something and die, you didn't hear the Holy Spirit right. Listen to the Holy Spirit. I believe that the healing power of God is in you, but the Holy Spirit will show you how to get yourself back to normal. Pray about it and let the Holy Spirit direct you. And praise God, I believe you're going to be free from sugar diabetes. Praise the Lord. Father, we agree and we receive that in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just thank you for this. There's a number of people here that have lack of movement in your shoulders. I don't know if it's rotator cuff or it could be a lot of different things. But if you're having having a problem with your shoulders, either pain or lack of movement, I want you to stand and raise your hand. If you're having trouble, raise your hand. Raise it as high as you can. We're going to pray for you. And I believe God is setting you free and you're being healed right now. Father for all of these I just agree and right now we release your anointing. Whatever it is it damaged these shoulders. Whatever causes the pain or the lack of movement. Pain you be gone in Jesus name. Leave them right now in Jesus name. And whatever the source of this pain is be healed in Jesus name. Rotator cuffs be healed. Now ligaments be healed. Tendons be healed. Father we loose your anointing. And thank you for healing flowing through their body. There's some of you right there feeling the heat of God go through your shoulders. Man, as you've got your hands up in the air, it was hurting. Now it doesn't hurt. You can begin to move your arms around. Father, we just receive this healing right now. Thank you that you have set us free. Thank you, Jesus. I want you to begin to start thanking God and praising Him that you're healed, whether you feel anything or not. Thank Him that you're healed. Believe that the Word of God is true and that you're healed. Here's the healing power of God flowing in your body. Thank you, Jesus. I believe right a bunch of you right there are experiencing freedom. Who in here has already had your pain leave or your movement has come back? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Here's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 10, 11, and 12. Here's a bunch of people that have already manifested healing. And you know what? All of the rest of you are healed too. You just keep walking it out. You stand on it. You will see the manifestation of this healing. Here's the Lord healing people's hearts. People that have been having heart problems, I want you to stand and raise your hand. You know, the Bible, I mean, the doctors say that raising your hands is good for your heart. I got a friend that says there's going to be two types of people that'll be healthy hearts. Those are people that praise God and robbery victims. Amen. If you got problems with your heart, I want you to stand and raise your hands. We're going to pray for it right now. If you got heart problems, stand and raise your hands. Thank you, Jesus. Father, in the name of Jesus, I release your anointing right now towards these people's hearts. Whatever's wrong with the heart, Be healed in Jesus' name. Somebody here has a weak heart muscle. It's just weak. Maybe part of it died from a stroke or something. But anyway, you got a weak heart muscle. Here's the Lord just healing this. It's not going to be weak anymore. Your heart's going to be the strongest part of you. Here's the healing power of God flowing towards you right now. We command irregular heartbeat to be gone. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I loose your anointing and whatever is wrong with these hearts, we just receive your healing power flowing through these hearts right now. Be healed. Brand new hearts. Healthy hearts in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Somebody here's had a real fear of heart problems. Here's your fear going. God's taking that worry away from you and there's a peace that's coming over you right now. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just receive this peace. Thank you, Father. We receive this in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, I don't know if you can tell if your heart's been healed, but I believe it has. You just believe that it's healed. You praise God for it. Expect to see positive results. And I believe your heart is recovering right now in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Father, we agree and we receive it. Thank you for all of these miracles taking place here tonight. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Praise God. Man, there's some awesome things happening down here. Yes, ma'am. God bless you. Good, good. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we agree and we receive. Thank you for all of these miracles in the mighty name of Jesus. Here's people with back problems way down deep in your back, down in your tailbone, down from your waist, right in there. There's, you've had pain down in the very lower part of your spine. Here's the healing power of God coming upon you, especially you have problems sitting, and you've been sitting a long time tonight. If that's you, if you've had problems down in the lower part of your spine, I want you to stand. Raise your hand. Here's the healing power of God coming your way. Father, we release this anointing right now towards all of these standing with their hands up. Father, we release your healing power. Whatever's wrong with this spine, spine, you be healed now in Jesus' name. Pain, leave them and let them go now. Somebody broke your tailbone. And it never mended properly. Here's God healing you right now, putting this back together properly. His pain's leaving and you're never going to have another problem with that. Here's the anointing of God setting you free. Here's pain leaving people now. Pain go now in Jesus' name. And Father, we receive your anointing. Believe that you're restoring disc Whatever it is that causes these pains, Father, thank you for your power flowing through them right now. And we believe that pain is gone, that healing is come. Thank you that they have freedom to move now in ways that they didn't before. Thank you that they can sit now in ways that they couldn't do before. Father, we just thank you for putting these backs back to normal. We thank you, Father, for your healing power coming on them right now in Jesus' name. You believe and receive right there. Just thank God that you're healed. Father, we thank you that this pain is gone or leaving us. Father, we're healed and our body's recovering. We just thank you that from this moment on, it's done. We aren't trying to be healed. We've already been healed. Father, we thank you for our healing in Jesus' name. Amen. Who in here's already pain's left you? Anybody in here? Here's somebody. Here's two people that pain left them. Here's another one. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Here's another one. Isn't that awesome? Man, we're seeing lots of people manifest healings. Thank you, Jesus. You know, the way I do it is not as spectacular as some people. We don't have everybody come up on the stage and go through a big deal, but I'm not trying to build a healing ministry. I'm just trying to get you healed. Amen. We can pray for more people this way. But I I believe God's power is here tonight. God is healing people and setting people free. That's awesome. Somebody says, well, I want to see a great miracle. Well, you know what? Getting your shoulders healed, getting your neck healed, getting sugar and diabetes healed, getting your back healed, those are great miracles to the people that received it. Amen. God loves every one of us. He wants you well. You don't have to put up with sickness. Jesus redeemed us from all sickness and all disease. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we agree and we receive that. We thank you for your healing power being here tonight. Father, thank you for touching people's lives. Thank you for healing people. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Father, we just agree and we receive all of these miracles. Thank you for touching people's lives in here. Thank you for changed lives hallelujah You know the Lord spoke to me that there's some people here that you were given a death sentence by the doctors. It may be imminent or maybe it's off in the future, but some of you have been told that you're terminally ill and you came here believing God for a miracle. Who's that? Here's one right there standing up. Anybody else? if that's you, if you've been told that you're terminally ill. I want you to stand. We're going to pray. And I believe God's breaking that. I believe that's a word from God for you. Anybody else? Here's another one over here. Here's one back here. Anybody else? Father, I thank you for these three right now in the name of Jesus. And we believe that your report is greater than the doctor's report. Right now, we cancel this death sentence. We cancel terminal cancer. We cancel brain tumors. We cancel anything that is trying to kill people. And we say in the name of Jesus, Father, we loose your power in here. We believe it's your will that we be in health. And right now we say that we will not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. By your stripes we were healed. And bodies we command you to receive. We command these diseases to leave. Now get out. Satan, we break your power. We command the spirit of death to leave them and be gone now in Jesus' name. And Father, we believe that healing is coming into their body. Whatever is wrong, we loose your anointing to not only drive out the sickness, but to heal whatever's been damaged. Father, whatever part of their body has been damaged, we loose your anointing now to restore, to bring them back to health. Father, we agree and we just thank you. We lose life and we command death to be gone and thank you that we are going to live and declare the works of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Y'all agree? Amen. I believe you guys are healed. Healed in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you. I believe next year if I come back or whenever I come back, you'll be here giving a testimony. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just agree and we receive these miracles now in the mighty name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. Father, we thank you for all of these things. Thank you for being here and being present to heal. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. You know, every time I go to ministering on the grace of God, talking about how God loves us in spite of who we are, you see greater miracles happen. Because the truth is, God wants all of us. Well, it's never Him that's not healing, but we our own sin consciousness and unworthiness stops God from flowing in our life. When people start all of a sudden getting free from this sin consciousness and feeling like they don't deserve it and they start receiving it by grace you see greater miracles. You see more people healed. It happens every single time. It's our own self-righteousness and and binding God to our own goodness that hinders the healing power of God. When you start receiving it as a gift, we just see a lot of miracles happen. A lot of people set free. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, it looks like everybody's getting prayer. Praise God for our prayer ministers. This way we're able to minister to so many more people. I appreciate them helping us. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming. remember, tomorrow...